Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. We continue our study in Genesis chapter 29 this evening. We're going to begin at 29.15. Before we begin, let us start with a word of prayer. Lord, we pray bless our time tonight. We pray that you would speak to us for your servants are listening. We ask that, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be always acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So before where we were, if you remember, we had Jacob sent, uh, was sent away by his father Isaac to his family, um, sent away peacefully, of course. It wasn't, uh, wasn't a rejection, but uh, peacefully sent away at the behest of Jacob's mother, Rebecca. Jacob has met his future fiance, as we're going to find out, they're going to get married tonight, Rachel, met her by a well. We talked a lot about well imagery last time. A lot of the Old Testament patriarchs meet their wives at wells. Jacob meets his wife at a well. Uh, Moses meets his wife at a well. Um, who else? I'm forgetting some folks. Who else meets their wife at a well? Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is met at a well, not through Isaac, but through the servant that Abraham sent out. Um, so it's well imagery having to do with the water, which is very important throughout the Bible. Waters of baptism, we meet Christ through the waters of baptism, which is the New Testament well. Jesus meets a woman at a well in John chapter 4. We talked about all that last time, so I won't rehash it, but uh, that's important imagery. Jacob immediately begins to uh, flex for this, for this very pretty girl and that he moves the top of the well, the stone that's on the well, by himself, even though it's very heavy, but he's uh, showing off a little bit for for Rachel, discovers that Rachel is family. That's uh, a, a cousin of his. And so he is now back with the family, Laban being Rachel's father, and he is staying with, with their family. So we're picking it up in chapter 29, verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Let's pause there. So what does this mean that Leah's eyes are weak? She wasn't that pretty. Probably that's what it means. It probably means that she wasn't that pretty. It could actually be a physical, I mean, a, a modern way to say that is, this, this, so this could be a Hebrew, a Hebrewism. Uh, not that her eyes were weak, but maybe she was a little weak on the eyes, you know, like we might say it today. Uh, it could be a literal deformity with her eyes, uh, a pretty common thing at this time in this dry climate culture. This dry climate was with the, the wind and, and the, the sandstorms that would oftentimes happen as people would develop these, uh, these problems with their eyes. Uh, because it's just very harsh elements. It could be something like that, but yeah. But you'll you'll notice it's that's given in in distinction to Rachel's beautiful appearance. So whatever it is that Leah has, she's not as attractive as her younger sister. Very likely, Leah has struggled with this her whole life, being the older sister, and uh, as as we'll learn, the sister that is not as 
cherished or loved as the younger sister, uh, and something that she's likely dealt with her whole life. Continuing in verse 19, Laban said, it is better that I give her to you, that is Rachel, I give her to you, than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to be but a few days because of the love he had for her. So they'd make a pact, Jacob and Laban. Jacob is going to work for Laban for seven years. Seven years, which would be the bride price for Rachel. So at, at this time in culture, it was common for uh, women to be uh, the, the brides, for lack of a better word, purchased, though it's not a purchase. Uh, it's not like we're buying women as if they're slaves or anything, but you would, you would like a dowry. You would pay a dowry to, to the husband for, for, the, uh, for the woman. We see it in the New Testament, excuse me, in, in the Old Testament law, this is actually filled out a bit more that there's a certain way the Hebrews are to use the dowries that, they, that the, the, the father of the bride is supposed to keep the dowry just in case something happens uh, to the new husband. If he dies or if he divorces and leaves for whatever reason, there's money set aside to help the, to help the, the, the lady so that she's not just out on the street with no ways to support herself. For the Hebrews, that's what it's supposed to be. So, culturally, who knows if that's <laughs> if that's what uh, what was happening at this time? But that's that's how it's supposed to be uh, down the road, according to the law for the Jews. So, what Jacob is doing then is he is he is working instead of paying money like you would typically do uh, as a dowry, he is going to work work for seven years for Laban. And the text says, because of Rachel's, excuse me, because of Jacob's love for Rachel, it only seemed but a few days. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place to make a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah and uh, to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Let's pause there. <sighs> so a bit of irony. Yeah, we see some shaking of the heads going on. It's a little bit of irony. Remember, Jacob was the one who threw his, uh, the, the uh, input of his mother, Rebekah, uh, there was a little switcheroo of the brothers, him and Esau with his father, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who received the blessing instead of Isaac. We talked about that and the implications of that last time, or a few times ago, so I won't, I won't go back and rehash all that out. But here we see now what's happened to Jacob. Uh, through another parent, a father now, uh, Jacob, uh, or the, there's, there's a switch of sisters. He thinks that he's marrying Rachel, the woman that he worked seven years for. He's actually marrying Leah. Now you may say, well, how is that even possible? Well, there's a big party. I'm sure the alcohol was flowing, as, as is what you do at parties. So he's probably a bit inebriated. Plus, uh, they didn't have artificial light, right? They couldn't just flip on the lights of their tents. So once it gets dark, it gets dark. Unless you have candles or lamps or something like that, that's, that's what you got. So have you ever been camping out? I mean, it, every time I go camping and I step outside my tent, I'm always just blown away by how actually dark it can get at nighttime. You know, we have lamps and everything outside, so we don't really experience darkness the way that, the way that uh, you did before the advent of electricity. So that's also a, a piece of this to play. It's dark. He may not quite recognize her. Likely, uh, she was veiled, which is something that the ladies would do at this time. 
when they would go into the, the, the marriage tent. So it's, it's the first day of the week, and these parties would last seven days usually, these marriage ceremonies, marriage parties. So the first day, the husband and the wife would be brought together, and they would consummate their marriage that night. And then there would be continuous celebration for the rest of the week of this new marriage. So that is what happened. However, it's not Rachel. It's Leah. So Jacob confronts Laban. What is it you have done to me? Did I not serve you? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Now, stop. So complete the week means, <laughs> John's laughing. Complete the week means let's finish out this week like we would with the party. And then you can serve me another seven years and have Rachel. <laughs> and notice the reason he gives. It's not done this way in our country. And you probably, you know, you can see Jacob going, really? You could have told me that seven years ago when we entered into this negotiation, right? So what's going on with Laban, right? Is, is, this, really, is this really the reason that Laban is giving? I, I don't think so. I think Laban's reason is a false reason. Laban is a conniver. Turn with me to Genesis 30, 27, just a page over. And we'll see the kind of man Laban is. So this is after they've had a bunch of kids. So this is years later. Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that Yahweh has blessed me because of you. Stop there. So Laban is the kind of man that practices divination. I have learned through divination that Yahweh has blessed me because of you. That's probably something he learned after this seven years, right? If I keep Jacob around, I am richly blessed by God most high. And he's learned this through divination. Now, what is divination, you might ask? Divination is basically observing the signs. However, we, however we want to think about observing the signs. Uh, in modern ways, it's done is either done through tea leaf reading. You ever heard about reading the, the, reading the tea leaves? Uh, this is the same word, by the way. This, this word for divination is the same word that is talked about at the end of Genesis, where we see Joseph, who we ha have not met yet, but Joseph, who's in Egypt, and he has a cup used for divination. All right, that's the same word used here. So it's likely some sort of maybe a teacup or, or a wine cup or something. It's used for divination purposes. So he's, he's all that to say is Laban is dabbling with the occult here. He's dabbling with Satanism to uncover what's going on with this. That's the kind of person Laban is. And unfortunately, that was pretty common in this culture. Most all of these people are pagans. They don't worship Yahweh. They worship false gods. Now, false gods are not false because they're not real. The false gods are absolutely real. However, they are not the Most High God. They are not Yahweh, the God of Israel. So they are created beings under God. If you remember, we looked at the Tower of Babel incident several, several weeks ago, and we saw that, that God had put these angels in charge of all the nations, and those angels fell because they took worship for themselves through the sin of idolatry, and they became these sort of localized evil spirits over these pagan nations. So we think of the Old Testament gods that were or the gods that we encounter in the Old Testament, like Molech, uh, Baal, and, and all these gods. These are these are real gods, 
small g, gods. They're not Yahweh God. They're not capital G God. They are created beings that, that, that are evil that rule over these pagans. And that is the kind of person that Laban is. Laban likely worships Yahweh as one of his gods, and he probably worships some of these pagan gods as well, because that was very common at this time. So what we don't want to do when we read the Old Testament is we don't want to read our culture back into the Old Testament. There was no such thing as an atheist in the Old Testament. There's no such thing as an atheist in the ancient Near Eastern culture. We think that sometimes. Like, if you don't worship Yahweh, then you, if you don't worship God, what do you worship? Nothing. Right? Oh, I'm just an atheist. I'm an agnostic. Because that's the kind of people that we encounter in our culture. But at this time in the world, atheists didn't exist. You worshipped something. And you had spiritual experiences with something. And that was either your worship was directed toward Yahweh, the God of Israel, or <laughs> it was directed to one of these fallen pagan evil gods, right? These evil spirits. Oftentimes what people would do is they would worship a pantheon of gods. They would have several different gods that they would offer sacrifice or offer worship to. Uh, we especially see this in, in more uh, like we think of, of, of the, the, the Greek or the Roman gods. Where there's a whole pantheon of different gods and you might worship three or four different gods. In fact, we're going to learn that Laban in a few, few weeks, we're going to learn that Laban has several household idols. And each one of those idols is likely an idol to a different local deity or a different god. So that's the kind of man Laban is. He practices divination and he worships these false gods. So when he says to Jacob in verse 26, Oh, the reason I gave you Leah was because the older daughter has to marry first and then the younger daughter. That's how it is in our country. He's like, no, Laban's being extremely deceitful. And, uh, and we learn that Laban has, under, has come to understand that if I keep Jacob around, I prosper. So Laban's not doing this to help Leah out. Leah's doing, Laban's doing this to help Laban out. I keep Jacob around. I'm good to go. And if I withhold from Jacob the, the woman that he loves, namely Rachel, then he'll probably stick around a little bit longer. And I could keep him around a little bit longer and he could prosper a little bit more. And Laban can prosper a little bit more. Verse 28, we read, So Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave this daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his servant Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Fourteen years a servant to Laban. And now he's got two wives, sisters. <laughs> Let's pause right here. And I'm laughing because I'm seeing a lot of heavy eye rolling and nodding and head shaking going on with the situation. Are there any questions or thoughts or anything? Anything to parse out before we move on? When I read this, uh, I guess years ago, I just thought Laban had had um, felt sorry for Leah because she wasn't pretty and nobody would really want her, and mm -hmm. he knew that Rachel would be taken regardless. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that it was actually uh, Laban was for Laban. Now I, I I do agree with you. I I think there is an aspect of that as well uh, that that Laban does want to marry Leah off, but. I think it's for selfish reasons as well. So it's, it's, I think it's kind of mixed in there with his own motivations of wanting to keep Jacob around as well. 
So it's, it's kind of like, oh, kill two birds with one stone. I can marry Leah off and I can keep Jacob around because he wants Rachel and I can get richer and richer because it's God ble- God's blessing me because of Jacob. So yeah, let's keep this guy around as long as possible. Way of patting himself on the back. They're like, look, I got a servant for another seven years, but I was also able to marry off my primary daughter. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But I feel bad for Jacob, though. He's there 14 years. She must be really worth it. Rachel must be really worth it. I'm surprised he didn't just grab that dad by the neck and say, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> He was so nice about it. He agreed to work for another seven years. Mm-hmm. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the education system in those That's right. That's right. All right. Continuing in verse 31. When Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And we'll pause there. There's a theme that's going to run through this next chapter, that even though Jacob doesn't love Leah, God loves Leah. God is going to take care of Leah. And that's a theme that runs throughout all scriptures. God takes takes care of the downtrodden. God takes care of those who are despised. You know, so so God is going to be with Leah. Now remember, Leah is the older one. She's the unloved one. She's she's the less attractive of the two. She's probably felt this her whole life, right? But God is here to take care of Leah. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she says, because Yahweh has looked upon my infliction, for now my husband will love me. So Reuben means see a son. Reuben. The Ben is a son, like Benjamin. Um, And Reuben means to see. So Reuben, see a son. You'll also see that that, uh, Leah is desperately trying to find her value in the fact that she can have children. Right? Maybe if I have some kids, then my husband will love me. Which is sad. It's, it's uh, sad for Leah. Verse 34, excuse me, verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because Yahweh has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon sounds like the Greek word, uh, excuse me, the Hebrew word Shema or Sema, meaning to hear. So Simi, Sema, Simeon, you can hear the, wor- the word play there. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, which sounds like the word attached. So there, there's all this wordplay in, in the names of these sons. Uh, so three kids, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. And with each kid, she's hoping that maybe this will be enough for my husband to love me. And each time, Jacob doesn't really seem to care about her. Finally, notice, notice the difference in verse 35 with her fourth son. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Yahweh. I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. What's the difference there with this fourth son? What's the difference, what's the difference in the fourth son than with the first three? What's, what's Le- uh, 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 in Leah's eyes? In the there's, first, there's been a shift. She was trying to please Jacob, and in the fourth she was pleasing God. Yes. So she. it seems that she is growing in her in her understanding of who she is or her identity in God rather than finding her self-worth and how her husband sees her right she's finding her worth in how God sees her 
So the first three is very much my worth is in how I can be a baby maker, right? Because at this culture, women were oftentimes seen as this. This is a means to have children. They did not have the same rights as men. And they're unfortunately, because of that, oftentimes not, not treated as well as their male counterparts. So that's the culture she's grown up in. That's what she's used to. And she's find, she's trying to find her own self-worth in the fact that she can have babies. And when that doesn't help or when, when that is ineffective, she turns to a different way to find her own self-worth and she starts to see her worth in God himself. It's, not, it's no longer about her husband with Judah. It's now about praising God. And that's the fourth son, Judah. Now, what's the significance of Judah? Judah is the one through whom Christ will come. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. So all of these children that we're going to discover and uh, that we've seen so far and into chapter 30 become the 12 tribes of Israel. They become the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Each one of the tribes is named after one of these patriarchs. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Jesus does not come from any of Rachel's kids, the loved wife. Jesus comes through the unloved wife and particularly through the, the child where she's no longer trying to find her worth uh, through what she can offer her husband, but through who she is in God. Verse 30, when Rachel saw, excuse me, chapter 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has who has am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then he said, Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah, go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Pause there. So Rachel is envious of her sister. Maybe one of the first times in her life she's ever felt envious of her sister. I mean, she's always been the favorite kid, right? She's the pretty one. And uh, now she's discovering that uh, my older sister is having more kids than me, and I don't like this one bit. So there's this competition now, competition between the sisters of, of who can have more kids. She approaches Jacob and says, you know, what's wrong with you? Why don't I have kids? <laughs> to which Jacob says, I'm not God. I'm not the one who opens up the womb, right? That's, that's God's doing. If, and if, if your womb hasn't been opened, it must be because God has withheld the fruit of your womb. God has not opened up your womb. Notice what Jacob does not do, or at least the text doesn't tell us whether he, whether he does this or not. He probably doesn't. He does not go pray for her, which is interesting. We have seen, I think it was Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob's father, when Rebekah had trouble conceiving children, the text says, and Isaac prayed for Rebekah, and Rebekah conceived twins in her womb. That was Jacob and Esau. We don't see Jacob following that same approach as Isaac, which is unfortunate, which is unfortunate. It, it is a man's responsibility to be the priest of his home. And what that means, the priest of a home is he intercedes, protects, and prays for his family. So if you're ever wondering, how can I take care of my family, men, then you pray for them. You teach them the Bible. You intercede for them, intercede through prayer. And it is his, it is his job to, uh, to be the priest for his family, and he is, he is not doing that. So then Rachel comes up with this idea. Take my servant, my maid, Bilhah, and have children through her. This is also a common thing done at this time in the culture because you could use your servants as basically a surrogate. This child would count as Rachel's child, but it would be through the womb of Bilhah. 
Verse 4. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Who is she wrestling with? Her sister. It's this unfortunate competition between these two women of, 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 uh, of who not only can have more kids, but who's, who's the one that's loved by their husband. So she called his name Naphtali. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So now Leah's doing the same thing that Rachel did. Verse 10. When Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Now we have this interesting story. Verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, that's the firstborn from Leah, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your, son man, some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So he called his name Issachar. Strange story. <laughs> this is where they are in their relationship. Hey, I want some of that fruit. I want some mandrakes. All right, well, send, send Jacob into my tent tonight. So Jacob comes in from the field and Rachel says, so I got really hungry today and I wanted some mandrakes and I bought them uh, from Leah for you. So she gets you tonight. And Jacob says, okay, he, he agrees with this. <laughs> and uh, he sleeps in Leah's tent that night. And God honors this, you see. God opens up the womb for Leah. So all through all this, we see God is for Leah. God is with Leah, even if Jacob and Rachel are not for Leah. Now, God being for Leah doesn't mean that God is against Rachel, right? We, we don't want to draw that conclusion. But we do see that God is, is with Leah and, and uh, guarding Leah and protecting Leah and blessing Leah. She's the one that has all the children. Verse 19, And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. My, now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. After she bore, after, after, afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. So we see through all this, Leah is still struggling with this rejection that she's received from her husband. She's going back and forth, right? The first three kids was very much all about trying to please her husband. Then with Judah, it seems like she's moved past this. Her next few kids that she names, you know, uh, what is it, uh, Gad and Asher, are not necessarily about 
her pleasing her husband. But now we see she's, she's sort of struggling with it. She's coming back to it, right? So with, with naming uh, this last child uh, Zebulun. I've borne him six husbands, so she called his name Zebulun. Zebulun sounds like the Hebrew, Hebrew word for honor. So she's, the idea is my husband will honor me. Now no, no, notice that. Not my husband will love me, but my husband will at least honor me. Show me a place of honor in the home. So it's unfortunate that she seems to not even be receiving that. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. This is Rachel's first kid. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may Yahweh add to me another son. So Joseph will be the one who ends up in the land of Egypt at the end of Genesis, but we're not there yet. So, but that's where we're headed with Joseph. A lot of people mistakenly think that Joseph is the one through whom Jesus comes through because Joseph is given such a prominent story at the end of the book of Genesis. But we need to remember, Jesus doesn't come through Joseph. Jesus comes through Judah. Jesus comes through Leah's son. And then further, the Levites and priests that work in the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament temple and before that the the synagogue are from the tribe of Levi also Leah's son right the leadership of the Old Testament Jews are the Levites the priests and the kings who were all from the tribe of Judah that's the kingly tribe all from the line of Leah so she is really blessed because through her She's, she's providing these, these children who are, who are going to end up providing the, 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 not only the priesthood, uh, the worship of Israel, but, yeah, but the, uh, the governorship for, for Israel through King David and Solomon and those guys. Those all come through Judah, who is Leah's son. Any thoughts or questions before we move on? All right, so back to verse 25. We read this already, and we'll stop here for the night. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph... Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and my country. So he's been, he's been there 14 years now. He's finished his, his time with Laban and he wants to go. And this is where we learn about Laban. Give me my wives and my children for whom I served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that Yahweh has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know that I have served you and your livestock has fared with me. And then there's this sort of new story, which are going to stop. So they're going to make another deal and we'll get to that, that deal next time. But just wanted to close with us really seeing the kind of person Laban is, because I'm, I'm going to return to this theme as, as, as we close tonight. What, what struck me as I was reading this is not only do we have this crazy story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and now the uh, the maids of both of those ladies. So four wives, four wives, 12 kids later, including a daughter. And spoilers, Jacob's going to have one more child by Leah. Uh, so that'll be 13 kids, excuse me, by Rachel. He'll have another child by Rachel. That'll be Benjamin. And that will be 13 kids. So 12 sons, one daughter with four different women. This all goes back to Laban's deceit. We have seen the problem that Jacob has in his own family, the unrest in his own family, because 
of the multiplication of wives. And I've said it many times that the Bible is honest. The, the Bible doesn't shy away from messed up families. And the Bible doesn't, doesn't gloss over the sinfulness that even our great holy patriarchs have in the Old Testament. Right, the Bible's honest. It's, that's one of the ways that I know it's an inspired book. It's not trumping up Jacob as this great hero who does all the great things and doesn't make any mistakes. No, I mean, Jacob makes a lot of mistakes. And the Bible's honest in this. And that's how we know it's inspired, right? That's, that's how we know it's truth. However, we see that when you multiply wives throughout the scriptures, it always ends poorly. Never, yeah, never when a man decides to take more than one wife does it ever work out for him in his favor. It always goes negatively. Well, this is the wisdom of the pagans. The pagans would say, oh yeah, the more the merrier, right? Hey, if you can have as many wives as you want, hey, you could gratify all of your desires with all of your wives and have as many children as you want. And children at this time were seen as a great blessing, uh, as they should be seen today in our culture. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they are, are often not. But that's what the Bible says, children are a blessing. So, hey, yeah, more, more, more kids, this is great. However, when we see men doing this, it always blows up in their face. It never works out for them. Why is that? Well, it's because that's not how God designed families to be, Right. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he put Adam and Eve in the garden. He didn't put Adam and Eve and six other women in the garden for Adam. It's one man and one woman. That is what a godly marriage looks like. Uh, we see in the New Testament where Paul's talking to Timothy, and he talks about the office of the overseer, the episcopos, the bishop, as we call him today, uh, that they are to be a one-woman man. That's that's literally how, how the language works. They're, they're to be a one-woman man. A husband of one wife is what he says. One-woman man. Uh, meaning polygamy's off the table, right? They're not supposed to be polygamous and have all these wives. You, you can't have that in the, leadership, in the leadership of the church, Paul tells Timothy, which is common, unfortunately. Polygamy was very common in that day. Uh, the Jews practiced polygamy. A lot of people don't know this. The Jews practiced polygamy up until the 10th or 11th century AD, right? About a thousand years after Jesus, the Jews practiced polygamy well, well up until that point. It's the Christians who put a stop to it. Wherever Christianity goes in the world, if it goes into a polygamous culture, the polygamy eventually stops as Christ penetrates into that culture. And as people convert to Christianity, over a, a few generations, polygamy is eradicated. Because that's the way, that's God's plan for marriage. One man, one woman. That's how God designed human marriage. All right, so that's point number one. <laughs> point number two is I, I want to go back to Laban and Laban's deceit and really think through how wounded these women must have been. I mean, put yourself in their position. Let's first put ourselves in Rachel's position. Rachel has been waiting seven years to be with Jacob. This man, Jacob said, the text says that Jacob loved Rachel and I'm sure Rachel loved Jacob as well. They've been waiting seven years for this marriage. And imagine, imagine being Rachel and, and now getting that knock on, on your tent door and it's your dad. And he tells you what he's about to do. Hey, you're not going to the marriage. Instead, Leah's going to the marriage. Like what? 
what are you talking about? You know, and, and we don't know what happened and how that conversation went, whether even Laban had to restrain Rachel in her tent or lock her away somewhere so that she wouldn't interfere with Laban's plan. We don't really know what's going on, but I'm, that, I mean, that's a trauma in her life. That's, that's an abuse by her father visited upon her. Now put yourself in Leah's position, right? Le- Leah, I'm sure, wasn't thrilled with this idea either. Right? Can you imagine being Leah's position, the, the, the one that's always been unloved and rejected? And now Laban comes to her and says, hey, you're going to marry Jacob instead of Rachel. She's probably thinking, what? That's not, <laughs> I don't want to do that, Dad. I mean, this, how can this work out well in anyone's favor, right? You know, so that's a trauma visited on, on Leah. And we see that Leah continues to, to be this unloved person in her life, unloved by her husband, Jacob. Terribly unfortunate. But what we do see in the midst of all this as we see God as a person who comes into the midst of our traumas and brings healing. He brings healing to our traumas. He loves Leah. You know, Leah, baby number four, Judah. Now I will praise the Lord. All right? Leah's come a long way. Leah's come a long way since, since her marriage. Four kids later, and she's just now starting to learn this love that God has for her. Even Rachel, I would say, who's been through this horrible trauma with her dad, and now this backbiting and bitterness with her own sister. You know, trauma begets backbiting. Trauma begets bitterness, even amongst families. But even towards the end, Rachel is, you know, crying out to God, and the Lord hears her, and the Lord gives her a son, and, and the person of, uh, of Joseph. And the Lord's going to give her another son and the person of Benjamin, which we'll see next time. So God, God comes into the midst of our trauma and he brings that emotional care and support and healing that we need. You know, and it reminds me of what Mary says in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1. I can never remember if it's Luke chapter 1 or if it's Luke chapter 2. And I want to read it. It's her Magnificat. It's the song that she sings. Uh, to announce the birth of Jesus. So it's, uh, it's Luke chapter 1. And we'll close with this. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now think, th- think about this song being applied to Leah and Rachel as I read it. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You can almost see that Judah imagery of, of Leah saying, you know, now I will praise the Lord because I've given birth to this Judah. Who is Mary carrying in her womb? She's carrying the man who comes from the line of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, who will grow up to be the king. You know, today's Christ the King Sunday, and we talked a lot about that in the sermon this morning, how Christ is the king. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He brings down the mighty, the Labans of this world, the ones who are just in it for me, just looking out for number one, and who will cause trauma to their own families if it helps him get ahead, he will abuse his own daughters. If it helps him get ahead, those are the kinds of people that God brings down low. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And at the same time that God brings down the mighty, he lifts up those who are humble, the Rachels, the Leahs of this world. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers Abraham and to his offspring forever. That's the Magnificat, the song that Mary sings about Jesus. It's called Magnificat because it begins with magnify. My soul magnifies. That's what it is in Latin, Magnificat. We see just in that one song, the character and the nature of God, who is for those of lowly estate, especially the Leahs of this world, the ones who have had horrible traumas done to them and have been continually rejected by their fathers, by their cultures, you know, no men were knocking on Laban's door to take out Leah, right? Uh, they all wanted to take out Rachel, I'm sure, because she's the cute one, but, but none cared for Leah. And she's been carrying these wounds her whole life. And she continues to carry these wounds. Now her husband's rejecting her and Jacob's rejecting her. And God is for Leah. God lifts up the humble. So that is uh, just an amazing promise. And of course, he does that through Jesus Christ now, right? Through Jesus Christ, not only does he forgive us, but he restores us, restores us back to that, that broken image that we've all received from our father, Adam, that image of God that is in us that has been unfortunately broken through sin and through trauma and through grief and through loss and all that. God, God restores that. So we'll stop there for the night. Are there any final thoughts, any, any questions, anything at all? Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for gathering us together to study your word, and we ask that you would bless us as we leave now, for you'd keep us safe on the way home. Guide us into all truth and righteousness, we ask this week, in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.